Okay, so not much housekeeping here, just a few words by way of context. This is the audio of the event I did in Boston a few months ago with Rebecca Goldstein and Max Tegmark. I introduced them both from the stage, so you'll be reminded of who they are in a moment. But uh, we focus in this conversation on the foundations of human knowledge and morality as well. It's really a conversation about what is and what matters. And as is often the case with live events like this, there were some sound issues. The sound is definitely echoey and not perfect, but um, I think you'll acclimate. Hopefully, you'll find the conversation as interesting as I did. And so, now I give you Rebecca Goldstein and Max Tegmark. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. I have some great guests tonight. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. My first guest is a philosopher and a novelist. She has written about the relationship between science and religion and science and values. And she's also just written wonderful books on some famous people, Plato and Spinoza and Kurt Gödel. And she's received many awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship and the National Humanities Medal from President Obama. Please welcome Rebecca Goldstein. Thank you for coming. And my second guest is a physicist at MIT. He's also a professor there. Uh, he's authored more than 200 technical papers on topics ranging from cosmology to AI. And he's the president of the Future of Life Institute. And he's now one of my, my go-to guests on the podcast. I think this will be his third appearance, if I'm not mistaken. Please welcome Max Tegmark. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so you much Max. for having Thank me. For coming. Okay, so as I said, I've really been looking forward to this because these are two people who I can really just dive into the deep end of the pool with without much concern about whether or not I can swim. I say in the, in the run-up to this, uh, Rebecca sent me an email asking if I knew what I wanted to talk about, and I said something very vague. And then she sent me another email that had maybe a, a thousand words in it, and it was just the most amazing roadmap to my intellectual life. It's what I want to spend the next 10 years thinking about. So I'm going to use that uh, very much to guide this conversation. And Max hasn't seen any of this, so he should just be terrified. <laughs> so I want to talk about what we think we know about reality and, and why we think we know it. And I want to talk about the parts of reality that, that matter and what makes them matter and whether we have to depart from scientific rigor in order to talk about anything mattering. And so this conversation will take us to, to, onto terrain that I love, which is the relationship between facts and values. But to start, I want to talk uh, briefly about the, the relationship between science and philosophy. And so, uh, Rebecca, I'd like to start with you. And just, I mean, there, there are many scientists who have said very disparaging things about philosophy is actually, actually one who we both know who I'm, I'm having an event with in about 48 hours 
he should probably remain nameless, but his name rhymes with Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but you, know, you, you repeatedly point out in your work that, that science is riddled with philosophy just from, from stem to stern, and that, and that you, if you are not aware of your philosophical assumptions when doing science, you're very likely to be making illegitimate claims about how your science maps onto reality. So, so start us off with a, with a little bit on the relationship between science and philosophy, as you see yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I sent you these, this roadmap. I know I'm, I'm trying to situate myself on it. I think that, that science is the, our, our great arbiter in trying to figure out the nature of reality, of what is. Um, and I think that this increment of, of, of science, the m- amazing trick, uh, that it eventually worked out sometime in the 17th century uh, was that it gets reality itself to collaborate with us mm. because our intuitions are all off, right? And so our intuitions about space and time and individuation and teleology and causality, um, all of these very deep intuitive intuitions we have turn out to be to be off. I mean, the nature of reality itself turns out, you know, that reality out there exists exactly as it's represented to us in our subjective experience is is off. And so, this is an amazing thing that we've figured out what to do to get reality, <clears throat> to, to prod reality, so that it will answer us back when we're getting it wrong. Hmm. You know, so, oh, so you think? Simultaneity is absolute, do you? It seems intuitively obvious that two events are either simultaneous with each other or not, regardless of which reference frames uh, they're measured in, moving relative to each other. Well, we'll just see about that. And somehow we prod reality to, to, to answer us back. And that seems to me that's, that's what science does. So any question that we can figure out so that somehow reality itself can kind of smack us around and tell us that we've gotten it wrong. That's scientific. Hmm. What philosophy, I think, uh, is, is about is trying to maximize our coherence. We're very compartmentalized creatures. I think for reasons that science is beginning to tell us why, evolutionary psychology is tell, can tell us why we're such compartmentalized creatures, we live very happily with our contradictions. And it's philosophy's job to vitiate our happiness. Um, <laughs> to, and it, that's been the way of philosophy ever since Socrates was wandering around that agora in his dirty chitin, annoying people, getting them, showing them the internal contradictions. It has to, the philosophy has to take all of the knowledge that science is giving us um, about what is, about the nature of reality, and, and test it against other of our intuitions and see which are compatible, which are incompatible, what the options are. So a philosophy is always dependent on science. A good philosopher has to know, has to keep up with science. Right. Um, but it's, it's a different kind of skill set 
that's called for. It's, it's not figuring out how to describe reality and then, and then tell us if it's right or wrong. Uh, and it's not, it's not merely a matter of being the birthplace of science because it, it, people, uh, it's often said, and I think I've said yeah. it myself, that there was a time where, where all questions, virtually all questions of, of interest were philosophical and then what's so-called natural philosophy birthed off these specific sciences. And I think in one of your papers you talk about just people in philosophy signaling, you know, we, we need we need some more science over here, you know, come help us. Right. And that's not that's not what philosophy it happens is, is doing. In the course yeah. of asking these questions and trying to get our bearings in the world, um, that sometimes philosophers very often will put forth proto-scientific questions. The science isn't there yet. The, Im yeah. the empirical means of prodding reality to as, as getting reality to be our collaborator doesn't exist yet, and often it's because the philosophers ask the question um, that the science emerges. It happened with physics, it happened with biology, it happened with linguistics. Um, it's, it's happening yeah. now in you know, a lot of the fields that uh, evolutionary psychology and um, cognitive neuroscience is taking over before psychology. Uh, so um, it is... Uh, so that happens, but I think that that is a, that's not what philosophy is about. Philosophy is not about prematurely ejaculating scientific <laughs> questions, right? That's not what we're trying to do. Right. It happens as a kind of accident, you know, yeah. uh, in, in, in trying to maximize uh, our coherence. All right, on that note, I'm going to ask Max what he thinks about philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> You're quite right. I mean, I, I've been in many physics conferences where someone is, some physicist has accused someone else of being too philosophical, as if that was supposed to be a put-down. And I find it absolutely ridiculous. You know, to me, philosophy is really a synonym of clear, logical thinking. And... Um, if you look at the PhD that I have and ask, what does the PH stand for? You know, I have news for those grumpy physics curmudgeons. It doesn't stand for physics. It's yeah. doctor of philosophy. Why? Because, well, natural philosophy is the phrase we used to use for, to describe what we now call science. It's the yeah. same thing. And, and so within science itself, we often distinguish between theory and experiment. I guess in, in your words, Rebecca, you could say philosophy is the pure theory. We don't do the experiments, and, and, and uh, we need that. Of course, all theory and no experiment, well, then you get string theory. And that might <laughs> be too much of a good thing also. Generally, we've had the most healthy progress when um, we've had both, yeah. where you have those theorists who keep annoying the experimentalists, like pointing out inconsistencies and giving them new ideas for things to try, new ideas for them to try to shoot down. And at the same time, you have these experiments to keep annoying the theorists by ruling out their theories. It's this interplay, which has always been at work whenever we've had really great progress, I would say. I think that's the biggest laugh I've ever heard with string theory as the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Boston did that happen. Let's just cut the enemies of philosophy a little slack here in that there's a difference in how we think about intellectual progress. So we, 
to say that there's been scientific progress is to say something that really would find no dissenters. I mean, there's just the, science, the progress of science is all around us. Yeah. How do you think about philosophical progress? What sort of philo philosophical progress have we made? Yeah. I'm sure you'll, you will say that we have made some and that it should be obvious to us, but we rarely talk as though we're making and have made great progress. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, well, before I address that, I yep. just did want to say, you know, in my saying that science is, you know, our best means of answering the question of what is the nature of reality, for me to actually defend that view would take me outside of science. I would, I would have to put forth, forth a, a philosophical argument, which I'm very prepared to do. Mm. But I mean, there, is, there are other views about what science is all about, instrumentalism. I mean, that it's that scientific theories never expand our ontology, our nature of uh, reality of what is, but it's just, you know, it's a means of predicting future experiences. And it never, you know, so there's no reason to think that these theoretical entities uh, that are used in scientific um, theories really exist, that there are fields or quarks or, you know, black holes or anything. And, you know, and some very good scientists in the past um, and, and some philosophers as well, you know, put forth such arguments. So even to uh, say yeah. what it is that science is doing, science, reality can't tell us, is it instrumentalism or is it realism, uh, realism, yeah. uh, scientific realism, um, that, you know, depends on a, uh, on a, philosophical <clears throat> argument trying to make coherent, you know, uh, our, our, what we're getting, the input we're getting from, from science. So it's just to, um, you know, to, to argue, I, I can understand how I call them philosophy jurors, you know, some of our most celebrated or certainly high profile scientists mm -hmm. who just really dismiss uh, philosophy. You know, I, I understand what their argument is. Their argument is, what else can is our intelligence good for other than figuring out what is? And it's science that does that. Therefore, you know, there are questions that we haven't answered yet about the nature of reality, but, you know, just give scientists enough time and research grants and, and, uh, and, and they'll get it. Um, well, there are other kinds of questions, um, including what is it that science is doing that is not yeah. that is not itself a scientific question so the, you can't even make the argument without wandering into um into philosophy yeah yeah um but what was your real question well so so well, i actually want to get there so i want i want to talk about realism versus all of its enemies like like instrumentalism and, yeah. and but just, but just briefly this the, it is often thought that we don't make philosophical progress because the same sorts of problems seem to come around you know we're, we're still and we're still reading Plato for like why if we made progress why would it why would anyone ever read Plato ever again yeah uh, so if you could just briefly address that before we move on to it's, very, it's a hard question and um, one of the arguments that I try to make is first of all when you read Plato and Aristotle I mean you're really amazed at um how good they were at spotting the questions, but how bad their their answers were. I mean, a lot of <laughs> these, you know, answers have been disposed of. And uh, a lot of, the other thing I think is that as we make philosophical progress, science has incorporated in a lot of the arguments um, about interpreting science that were really philosophical problems, the distinction between primary and secondary qualities, right? That mm. 
uh, the 17th century philosophers made. The primary qualities are the ones that we captured in the language of mathematics, you know, which was the language of physics, and they really exist out there. Um, so position and, mo and, and motion and, and uh, weight and any, anything that can be described and, uh, described and measured in purely mathematical language. Um, and then you can subject them to mathematical equations and make progress. And everything else was deposited in the mind. You know, yeah. so the, the, the way things uh, look and the way they taste and the way they smell, that was all put into the mind. That this was all a philosophical um, argument made in the 17th century that just sort of became incorporated into what we think of as a scientific point of view now. It's, right. it's a philosophical interpretation, but it is philosophy, and the arguments were philosophy, and it is part of what we think of as a scientific you know, world, world yeah. view now. I think that in general what happens, I think that there has been a lot of progress, and I think particularly in moral philosophy, that these were moral, testing our inconsistencies, our moral inconsistencies, pointing them out, making arguments, um, and, and moving us forward so that it's inconceivable to us now when we look back at our slave-owning, wife-beating, heretic-burning, you know, witch-stoning. Yeah, immediate family. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how could they not have seen this? Well, they didn't see it. Yeah. And it was philosophical arguments that got us to see it so that now it just, you know, we don't see philosophical progress because we see with it. It becomes the very lens that we're looking at the world with. And so it becomes invisible to yeah. us. So, yeah, it really is the water in which we swim yeah. intellectually. And, and so I want to talk about realism, which can be defined in, in a few different ways. But I, when I think about it, whether you're talking about scientific realism or moral realism or even introspective realism, just you know, trying to figure out what it's li actually like to be you in each moment, it's the claim that there are truths, whether you know them or not, right? There, it's possible to be right or wrong about the nature of reality, and it's possible to not know what you're missing. There's a, an appearance-reality distinction where you're trying to get behind appearances and science is arguably the most rigorous place where we try to get behind appearances, or, or it certainly has the most rigorous methodology. Max, how do you think about th this appearance and reality distinction as a, as a physicist and cosmologist? How do I think about realism? And yeah, yeah. I mean, what, do you, what do you think science is doing? Because as Rebecca said, there's, yeah. there's, you can spend a lot of time as a scientist reconciling yourself to being an instrumentalist, which is just, you know, the math yeah. works out, we can yeah. predict the results of experiments, but who knows what we're actually probing into? What, what, who knows what it really looks like? One thing I've been quite surprised by over the years, actually, is how many, um, many scientists are incredible, even though you have an incredibly intelligent bunch of people <clears throat> to come to entirely opposing views on philosophical matters, and often when you probe a little bit deeper, it's because they're quite naive about it and haven't even bothered understanding, you know, the various opposing points of views and because they dismiss all of this as too philosophical. So, but then they have their own closet philosophy that they just don't call a philosophy. So, they, you know, so basically haven't thought it through. And some scientists take this very instrumentalist point of view that, hey, you know, who cares about if there's an ultimate reality or not? Or <clears throat> we should just focus on... Uh, building gadgets that work and so on. Um, 
that's, I guess, really just a preference, a matter of interest. Some people like chocolate ice cream. Some people prefer strawberry. You know, if someone doesn't care what exists. But I, I do. I find it absolutely fascinating. It's this, this deep curiosity to try to understand more about the cosmos we live in that made me want to be a scientist. Uh, then there's a second school of um, dissent, you know, not the ones who say, I don't care about rea what reality is, but that deny its existence at some level. Uh, you get people who, who uh, deny what I call the external reality hypothesis, this hypothesis that there actually is an external reality independent of us humans. Of course, you get some extreme folks like solipsists, We'll just say that nothing outside their hand exists. But they're, they're a small Why minority. Why do they bother to say it? Who but are... you... Yeah, yeah. Who, are, who are they talking to? Yeah. <laughs> but you also get the very famous people like Niels Bohr, one of the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, who said, no reality without observation about his quantum theory, which, when you think about it, means that it's humans. It's our observing that somehow makes things real. And... Um, this, to me, feels extremely arrogant, I have to say. I, I, no offense to you folks, or you folks, but I'm pretty sure that if, if all of us disappeared, the Andromeda galaxy would happily keep doing its thing. Hmm. And it uh, feels to me more, less of a, like, a thought-through, really, scientific position or philosophical position, and more like just the continuation of this human hubris that set us back in so many other ways. You know, we used to be so obsessive about... Earth being the center of the solar system and then denying the idea that there could be other solar systems. We even burned Giordano Bruno at the stake 400 years ago for, for saying that. And then this uh, now resistance of, of the idea of maybe parallel universes. Also this idea that somehow we're so special relative to uh, animals or slaves or whatever. So now when we say, oh, we're so special that reality couldn't exist without us. Um, I think it's <laughs> silly, but it's a viewpoint I encounter quite a bit still in, the, in, in, in some scientists. Yeah, so the interesting thing is, of course, if philosophical education was part of scientific education, um, they would find these kinds of viewpoints having been um, put forth. I mean, Bishop Barclay, nothing, you know, S.A.S. per Kippy, nothing exists unless you perceive it. Um, you know, he was putting forth these views and other people were criticizing them. And there's a whole long history where these things have been argued out and the, its weaknesses explored. And, um, you know, it just would be good. It would be so stupid of me as a, you know, as a, as a non-biologist to think that I'm just going to charge in and say what's wrong with, you know, evolutionary biology or something without, without educating myself. There is a discipline in which all yeah. of these views have been argued out and hammered out and their strong points and their weak points evaluated. And since physics and, and all science raises these philosophical questions, why not study the field? Exactly. But you see, this is precisely where this anti-philosophical snobbery comes in as a psychological defense mechanism, because these scientists will say... Well, I don't do philosophy. I think philosophy is stupid. And then they will charge in and talk about all these philosophical questions, make up their own non-standard terms for things that philosophers have discussed for, mm. for hundreds of years and completely ignore everything that's been done. And effectively, what they're doing is just bad, uninformed philosophy, yes, right? Yes, um, yes, exactly. And they justify it to themselves by saying it's all that philosophy is somehow 
stupid. Mm. I don't think that philosophy can be avoided, not just by scientists, but by all humans. I mean, I, in fact, think, you know, one way or another, we're all trying to get our bearings in the world, figure out what is and what matters. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't avoid, you know, some kind of philosophy uh, in, in doing that. I think that yeah. it's part of being human. Yeah, and unfortunately, there are impressive reasons to be skeptical that we're good at doing any of that. Yeah, that, yeah. And it's, it's not just the, sort of the, the outcomes we see around us. It's, it's that if you, if you take an evolutionary perspective, if you take the perspective of evolutionary psychology, it's pretty clear that there are two inconvenient facts here. One, reality wasn't designed with us in mind. It wasn't designed so as to be perfectly interpretable by us. And that's provided we're not living in a simulation that was run by the Mormons who actually conquer the world at some point. I'm waiting to find that out, that Mormonism is in fact true in this simulation and everything I've been saying is going to consign <laughs> me to hell. But uh, there's also the fact that we have not evolved our cognitive toolkit, our intuitional toolkit, and we'll talk about the primacy of intuition in a moment, has not, it hasn't been tuned up by evolution to track reality as it is. It's yeah. just, that's just not the sort of apes we are. I think that's very astute what you're saying there, Sam, because the, one of the reasons that has caused a lot of curmudgeonly scientists again and again dismiss philosophers and often dismiss even other scientists like, who were a little too radical for their taste, you know, Einstein type, was precisely by saying, oh, these ideas are too weird. And when they couldn't refute them with experiment, they would refute them by saying, that's not science. And, but what that really meant, saying that it was too weird, if, if you reinterpret that sentence in the context of evolutionary psychology, really meant that, you know, you know, obviously, as you said, we evolved our brains to have intuition for the things that were useful for our ancestors, right? Like how to hurl rocks at people and not get hit by the parabolic motions and stuff. We had no intuition whatsoever for anything that wasn't useful to them, like things moving much faster than us near the speed of light or things much smaller than us like quantum particles. So what, what evolution actually predicts for science is that whenever we use tech to see things that answer, our ancestors had no access to, it should seem weird. Hmm. It should challenge our very notion of what the boundaries of science are it should probably force us even to redefine from time to time you know, what we mean by science. So one could say, in, in, in that sense, that people who are being dismissive like this of, of things just because they say they're too weird or this is not science or too philosophical are really denying the fact that they're evolved apes and, and they're, they're taking this, this evolved evolutionary notion of what's intuitive and what's weird we're conflating that with some kind of truth. Well, this is actually a point that we, we hit in a previous podcast, but I think it's worth reiterating, is that you, you would be suspicious of any final description of reality that was commonsensical. Oh, yeah. Right? Because we know our common sense isn't fitted to time frames in billions of years or to the, the Planck scale or to anything else that is at the frontier of your discipline. Exactly, the common sense, we, we should assume from evolution that it should simply be a useful approximation for that very limited domain of reality that we had access to without microscopes or telescopes or particle colliders or any modern tech. 
Yeah. So that's, of course, I mean, of course, science has come too far. We could never go back to something that's commonsensical. I mean, relativity theory, you know, general relativity theory, quantum mechanics, it's already blown our minds, right? And yeah. so we, we know that reality does not correspond so some of our deepest intuitions about space and time and causality, yeah. they, they've already been, you know, they're gone. Um, and so, I mean, we're, there's no going back. Um, Except for those people who believe that all of this was created by a person just like us who doesn't like homosexuality for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and I guess that's, I mean, you said that um, there, are, there are two great obstacles to our understanding uh, the nature of reality, what is and what matters. I mean, to mm. me, those are the two big questions. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and one is that, yes, obviously, unless, um, it, unless this world was created by some designer who made sure that our cognitive abilities are up to the task, not much evidence for that, um, yeah, this world, the laws of nature are, are, they were not designed with our cognitive faculties and capacities uh, in mind. And so it's amazing. To me, when, when people talk about all that we don't know, I, I'm not amazed by that. I'm amazed that we know anything, mm -hmm. uh, given that we are um, these evolved apes. And the other thing that, that keeps us, and here, a little more about um, moral knowledge that keeps us from um, understanding um, nature of certain aspects of reality, including moral reality, um, is uh, you know our own self-involvement, um, our own way of privileging our ourself and and those we love and mm -hmm. our kin, our tribe, all of that, and so and that also is a tremendous obstacle uh, in terms of. We, we've made very slow moral progress. We've, you know, we've made it, but yeah. it's it's there. There's a real, it, and there, it's not getting reality to answer us back. It's more looking at the various things we believe and seeing the internal inconsistencies. So we've got science to this great thing of just, you know, we need reality to answer us back because reality, you know, wasn't created with our with our capacities in mind. So we've developed this these scientific tools. And I say philosophy is these other different set of tools, thought experiments, um, and forcing people to put all their premises out on the table, mm. digging them out, going further and further. What are the presumptions of your belief? Um, and the end game of that is to, um, the end of that game is to, to expose our, our inconsistencies, our internal incoherencies. Um, and we don't like that. I, that's, I'm really, that's, that's our saving grace, really. Uh, if you, we fi find all sorts of ways of denying uh, that we are internally inconsistent, because it's usually working to our advantage mm -hmm. to deny these inconsistencies. Um, but if you really keep hammering at it and you push people's faces into it, eventually they give it up. And um, I think uh, that's a different kind of reason. It's not science, a different kind of reasoning um, activity, and it also helps us to make progress. It's humbling to consider just how ill-prepared we are for our modern circumstance by evolution. When you think of something as, as simple and as 
obviously evolved and as, as fundamental to our survival as, as pain. Like, so, we, so we are, we've obviously evolved to feel pain, but we have not evolved to sense pain in a way that is especially useful in a modern context. For instance, you, you can feel excruciating pain or be at least seriously inconvenienced by having an eyelash in your eye, right? Which is, means nothing, but you can, your body can be riddled with cancer and you feel no pain at all because we have not evolved in a condition with oncologists and hospitals. And, but it would be very useful to feel pain associated with cancer and so as to detect it early. There's almost certainly intellectual equivalence to that sort of disability where it would be, it would be so much nicer to be able to do something intuitively or effortlessly that is in some way crucial to uh, the whole enterprise. You're at the frontier of, of thinking about AI, and so we're now talking about the prospect of building minds better than our own at doing some of these things. Do you spend any time th worrying that there, there are certain questions that can be posed that are interesting, but take string theory as an example. Is string theory just a intellectual dead end that has absorbed the careers of you now of a full generation of physicists? Uh, I don't want to be able to make you any enemies here, but... And if not string theory, is, or do you worry that there is something very much like that, where we are just we're playing with tools that are too blunt or not shaped appropriately for that corner of the universe? Well, let me say two things. First about string theory, and, and, then, and then more broadly about what we can and can't do with our evolved minds. For string theory, even though I was joking about it earlier, and even though Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory has now broken up with string theory, Hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen that episode yet. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that most physicists today who say they're working on string theory are actually working on much more broad questions than just fundamental theoretical physics. And it's, string has just been kind of the thing they call themselves to sort of have a little community and get jobs. But it's more like the, 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 what was the theory formerly the known as, as, as strings. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of promising avenues in there, for sure. That doesn't mean every physicist should work on it, obviously, but it's good to take swings for the fences sometimes. On the broader question about um, what we can and can't do with our evolved mind, I think as an antidote, I mean, we had a lot of negativity here where we were lamenting, oh, evolution has limited us so much like this, we can't get intuition for this, and we're no good at that. Wouldn't it be great if we could have better pain <laughs> sensors for the, and so on? The flip side of that is I think there's a lot we can be very grateful for also that works remarkably well. And in, in, as you said, that's in a way worked way better than expectation. If, if, it is if, a kind of a miracle if, that it works as well as it does. It because, is. I mean, yeah. Look at the chimps, and the it, chimps are not doing much of anything. And it is. And, it, and first of all, if you think about the, what, we, what we actually evolved for, you know, our bodies haven't evolved that much in the past thousand years, but yet... We're living lifestyle now. We're sitting. We're in a big, giant wooden stone box with weird artificial suns here and and strange stuff on our bodies. And everything is. But we spend large fractions of our lives staring at the angles and the. Might have a, might have a, a loose. Hold on, hold on one second. I just want to remedy this problem because um, civilization is not working as well as advertised. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe it's the Mormon simulators. Right. <laughs> this would be the first sign. Okay. So, but on the on the optimistic side, first of all, it's remarkable how adaptable we are, and second, I do think it's it's actually 
really remarkable how much better we've been able to do with science than one might have thought. We are actually the masters of underestimation, as I think the summary of what we've learned from science in the past many thousands of years. First, we've, of course, underestimated dramatically the size of reality, mm. and everything we thought existed was just a small part of a much grander structure, right? A planet, a solar system, a galaxy, galaxy cluster, universe, maybe more. But more fundamentally, we've also underestimated our own potential as humans to figure out our world. Think when Plato and Aristotle were, and so on were trying to understand a little bit of physics, they, almost everything was mysterious. And there were just a few things they thought they could find some formulas and regularities for, like motion. And then it turned out that was also completely wrong, what Aristotle had. And it took 1,500 years and Galileo fixed it. And yet today, we can turn it around and, and note that actually, you know, Whereas Galileo, he could have a grape and a hazelnut and tell you how they would move if you threw them, right? But he couldn't tell you why the grape was green and the hazelnut was brown and why the grape was soft and the hazelnut was hard. Now, we can answer all of those questions with electromagnetism, with quantum mechanics, and, and, and we have managed to bring into the domain of science almost all aspects of the physical world now, except for consciousness mm -hmm. and intelligence. And... Uh, and Continuing just on the optimistic, you know, gratitude side of this, this understanding has been wonderful, not just for satisfying our philosophical curiosity, but it's precisely this deeper understanding, which has, of course, given us the technology, hmm. which has transformed our lives. That's why our life expectancy isn't 35 anymore, right? And um, so even though, yeah, it kind of sucks that I'm so dumb and, that, you know, that evolution... That's the, that's the Tegmark quote I want on Twitter. It kind of sucks that I'm so dumb. <laughs> you know, actually, things were not mysterious to Aristotle. That was the problem. I mean, he had a complete worldview that seemed to answer everything. Hmm. Um, but it, um, it was just all wrong. It was a completely wrong uh, methodology of explanation mm. because teleology was at its center. Yeah. I mean, the incredible thing that happened in the 17th century with Galileo and then even more with Newton uh, is that this marriage of mathematics with empirical observation and prediction, this is an extraordinary thing. It's not an, at all intuitively obvious yeah, yeah. that you take this, you know, what, philosophers call a priori mathematics. It's not, it's a priori, it's not at all dependent on experience, right? It's completely deductive. And you marry it um, to observations and, and you get this powerful uh, methodology for exploring reality. And for, for Aristotle, you know, the quantitative was just one of the 10 categories of description, which were, were not very very uh, important. It was all teleology. W what processes have an end and uh, we understand a process, a physical process, um, all processes, uh, by understanding what it's supposed to be accomplished through yeah. it. Mm -hmm. So it was a, you know, it was a way of explaining, but it, it just didn't work. And so, you know, it was, so really, you know, science, it, we have infinite work in science, I would say, for uh, thousands of years. I'd say we've been working since the 17th century. So yeah. it's even more amazing yeah. how much and progress we've made. Yeah, and if I may just add a little bit to what, what you said there, Rebecca, I, I think this is also a tribute to modern philosophy, where you know, the key word, I think, is humility. The idea that 
to get things right, we first have to be open to the idea that we might be wrong yeah. and actually question everything, in particular question our own prejudices. And that's what was really missing yeah. in Aristotle's time. Yeah. And once we got used to this idea that not only were we often wrong and it was a good idea to question it, but often when we questioned ourselves, that's precisely when we were able to get great new breakthroughs, which helped. That yeah. ushered in the modern revolution, the Renaissance, science, yeah. Yeah. and all the tech. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I mean, you're right. There's a kind of collective humility, I think, in both science and in philosophy, which very fortunately doesn't require that the actual pra practitioners be humble. Because yeah, scientists are known can, for their humility. We can be thankful for that. Yeah, right. But, yeah. but there's, there's a kind of collective humility. Um, and I, I, yeah, so I often think of, to me, the def very definition of, si of me being a scientist is that I would rather have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. That's right. good. Yeah. <clears throat> so I want to talk about the, the concept of possibility. So much of what we talk about in our personal lives and in science and in philosophy takes as an assumption that there is a world of possibility. To, to talk about counterfactuals, things that might have been different, makes sense. To talk about certain things that could have happened, but in fact didn't happen. What gives us license to say that we might have done this event yesterday as opposed to today? And is this necessarily a, a scientifically or philosophically meaningful statement? I guess there, there are two views in philosophy and, and science that seem on their surface to be almost the same. I, they, they have different origins. Uh, so I, I wanted you to, to describe what's called modal realism in, in philosophy. And I wanted to connect that up with this picture of the, the many worlds interpretation of QM and then just talk a little bit about what it means to, to think in terms of possibility. Because yeah. my, my default setting now is that it may not make any sense at all to talk about possibility, that what is actual is, in fact, all there is and ever is and ever will be, and that possibility is just a fiction that we have spun in our conversation about what is, in fact, unfolding or seems to be unfolding. So yeah. Bring us to bring us to modal realism and Yeah. Uh, well, um actually Max would be better about modal realism cuz no. I think he believes in it. Um and I don't. <laughs> do you, do you use do you use that <laughs> word for it? Well, you're the more of a card carrying philosophy for than I am. We should defend um I could explain what it, but, it means, but yeah. But it, it, if you loosely speaking take it to mean that everything that could exist does exist. I find that it's an interesting idea, but it's a little bit too wishy-washy to be really scientifically testable. And um, the, the various uh, theories of physics that give you some kind of a multiverse, whether it be distant regions of space that light hasn't reached us from yet, which are predicted by you know, some versions of inflation that gave us a Big Bang, or, or the ones of quantum mechanics or, or something else, uh, those are more restrictive in a way. It's not like everything I could think about after I had too much wine exists, uh, but rather if you have some particular equations, physics that have this solution, you know, if they have another solution too, maybe that exists. That's the kind of alternative realities that these theories tend to give. And, but the shocking thing is 
that those alternative realities are still, in those cases, very many. And uh, this bothers a lot of people. So, for example, my colleague Alan Guth here at MIT, he, uh, when he and others came up with this inflation theory, which is the most popular mainstream theory of science right now for what caused our, our Big Bang, you know, what it basically says is, yeah, you took something smaller than an atom and it kept doubling its size over and over and over again until it was vastly larger than all the space that we can see, that we mm -hmm. call our universe. And it also predicts that all this other space is also kind of uniformly filled with stuff initially. We know that in this neck of the woods, that stuff, those atoms and so on, gradually coalesced to form, among other places, the Milky Way galaxy, our solar system, and Sam Harris, respect Rebecca Goldstein, and me and you, and here we are, you know. Um, but we know that the probability that this would happen in some random place isn't zero, because it happened here. And inflation typically predicts you actually have an infinite amount of other places with stuff. So if you roll the dice infinitely many times, of course, it's going to happen again. Yeah. And, and uh, the shocking prediction is then that if you go far enough away, you're going to get to another place where this identical conversation is taking place. The, yeah. the first one you come to, the, the person wearing the red sweater is not going to be, is going to be named Max Schmegmark, and he's going to be speaking some incomprehensible different language, whatever. But if you go far enough, you'll even find someone who speaks English and has the same memories. It's very disturbing uh, notions, but you can't dismiss it just by the saying it sounds too weird, right? right? The way you dismiss it would be to falsify this physics theory, Alan Guth's equations. And there are people building experiments right now to try to falsify it or test it better. And that's how we're ultimately going to sort it out, not by having prejudice about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So the, the philosopher who was um, argued very strongly for modal realism was David Lewis. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, did did you know him? Did you? Yeah, you no. When I was a graduate student at Princeton, uh -huh. he was yeah, he was actually on my dissertation committee, mm. um, and um, yeah. I won't pry any further. Then, well, maybe I will pry. Yeah, no, he's a very <laughs> sweet man. He's a, a very sweet I heard, man. I heard. I never met him, but I, yeah, he, he was, was supposed to be very smart. He was a formidable philosopher yeah. and a very sweet man. Um, I'm actually have a very strong mental image right now of he had a train set in his basement. Um, and he would only take people he liked very much down there. Uh -huh. And I did get to go down there once. And you were he, train set material. And it was. <laughs> that sounds kind of sketchy when a professor says, hey, do you want to come down to my basement? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you really stole the thunder from this David Lewis story, I no, have to no, say. No. We can, we can edit that out. All, yeah. We'll edit the thunder back in. But anyway, he, when, he, when he was running the train set, he put on this little engineering cap, and it was just the cutest uh -huh. thing I ever saw, right? But, uh, but yes, he took, you know, very, very seriously. Well, he had a way... You, you asked, is it meaningful to talk about, you know, had, um, you know, had I not gone to college, then I would not now be a philosopher or something, you know, what are the truth conditions of that? I right. mean, how do you figure that out? Um, and the way he did it was by reifying possible worlds and saying, you know, that there are a whole bunch of possible worlds and they really exist. And you go to the nearest possible world in which I didn't go to college and you check it out, you know, 
we can check it out. But what would make it true right. is if that antecedent, you know, um, were true, would I not be a philosopher, right? Or, you know, if I didn't go to college and I wasn't a philosopher, then I'd be a millionaire now or something. And you go to the nearest right. um, possible world. So he really, he really took possible worlds very, very seriously in order to formulate what he took to be the truth conditions for counterfactuals. He got there for none of these probability no. reasons that, that Max just... No, it was about, it was, you know, counterfactuals make sense, right? We understand them. You know, if I, you know, if you hadn't called me right then, I, you know, would have missed the most important phone call of my life or something. Right. You know, we'd say these things all the time and we, and they seem meaningful. Mm. How, what are the truth conditions? And he thought that the only way to do it was to say that all these various possible worlds in some sense really exist and, um, you know, so when I didn't get hit by that truck this morning, um, which was a very near miss, I, there is a counterpart in a very close possible world of me who did get yeah, hit, right. who did get killed. So um, It is funny that it is strangely a- convergent with the, the main world. If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.